So hey guys, welcome back. We have another one. And uh, today we have John Bosnecker on the phone. And we're going to be talking to John about his new book, the newest out that's uh, actually uh, probably by this time when you listen to this podcast, it'll be out on Amazon. And it's The uh, Gentleman Bandit, The True Story of Black Bart, The Old West Most Infamous Stage Coach Robber. And you can find John's books at booksellers near you and Amazon. And like I said, when you by the time you hear this podcast, it'll be close to coming out, which is around March 4th, uh, 2023. And if you've been listening for a while, then you want to get the book over uh, at a bookseller near you or an, on Amazon. Of course, I want to thank uh, our friends, John and I are friends, Mark Boardman and Eric Wright at the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest running newspaper. You can subscribe and become a subscriber by... Uh, uh, going to tombstoneepitaph.com. I usually urge folks to do the three-year membership because it saves you $15 overall. And uh, it's, it is it is the number one, to me, it is the number one uh, Wild West newspaper that's delivered uh, monthly to your door. And again, that's the Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com. I also want to thank our second family, including John, our second family over at the Wild West History Association. You can find out more about the Wild West History Association by going to wildwesthistory.org. Now, the reason that I keep pushing this is, is I'm just a guy that is interested in the factual history, that factual truth of Wild West history. And if it wasn't for the WWHA, this is not a lie, if it wasn't for the WWHA, I would have never been at a round table in a bar in Deadwood with John Bosnecker, Kurt House, Roy Young, um, David DeHaas, like the, the, the most amazing historians and researchers. We were all at one table. I was so blown away. I bought everybody beer and I'm like, y'all are having a beer and it's on me. And, and the reason is, is because the WWHA brought these people, they bring them all together. And here I am, just this guy. I've never written a book and, and I'm having a beer with them and they are telling my wife and I this history and they're going back and forth. And Kurt, you know, and Kurt is, Kurt House is just sharing his knowledge and John and David and Roy Young. It was, it was like the most phenomenal history event or spot. I've ever had. And and I'm telling you the truth. It's because of the WWHA and being a member and you should be a member too. It's only 75 bucks a year, but the the ability to sit with these folks and learn from them is you can't get it anywhere else. And so I, again, I urge you to join the Wild West History Association by going to wildwesthistory.org. Now, John and I the last time we did an interview was October 31 First, I think it was. What do I got? I got to look through my notes. I got too many notes here. It was, yeah, it was October 31st and um, 2021. And it was right about the time that his Pearl Hart book came out, The Untold Story of Pearl Hart. And it, it changed the way that folks viewed Pearl Hart. Because there was lots of video, and and I'll be honest, I went right to Wikipedia and I read some stuff, and I was working on the the pre-interview notes, and I ended up being all wrong. In fact, I'd say something to John like, "Well, I read this," and John would say, "Well, that's not true," and he would tell me the truth. Well, that's important to me, and and 
And I think it's important to know that interviewers, when they, when they do interviews like this, like we do our best to take our notes for a podcast, but I like to be told the truth. And that's the one thing John does is John will say, Mike, mm, that's not true. And I appreciate that about him. Well, we're doing the same thing with Black Bart and we're trying to fit, I'm trying to figure out why a man, a gentleman like Black Bart, um, did John pick that? Because there's tons of video and, and TV shows. And I think there was a movie, like there was tons of stuff out there about Black Bart. And yet, you know what? It John picks this, this, this guy and says, I'm going to write a book. So welcome, John. And why did you write about Black Bart? Well, thanks for having me, Mike. And uh, yeah, Black Bart, uh, it's, he's somebody that I've collected information on for decades. And uh, even years ago from one of his uh, great grandsons, I purchased a, uh, I think about eight letters that he wrote to his wife uh, from San Quentin. And uh, those letters kind of had a lot of insight into his character, which isn't particularly admirable, as you could imagine, because he was a stagecoach robber. Uh, but uh, there were a three uh, very good books about Black Bart that came out in the early 90s, and I assisted the authors of two of them with their research and you know, shared some of the stuff that I had. And But each of those books was... Um, written completely independent of the other. So all three books are very valuable, but all of them have information that's not contained in the other two books. And so then uh, I always thought it would be great to for somebody to combine all three of those, which then never happened. Uh, there were a couple of books that came out, like self-published books in the last 10 years that had all kinds of kooky claims about what happened to Black Bart, and they were basically more like historic fiction than anything else. And so then uh, with the advent of the internet, um, it's possible to just do incredible research that would be, have been impossible before historical newspapers were digitized. And so with the three books and my desire to have those three sort of uh, complement each other. And then the research I've done off and on over the years, plus the easy access to many, many newspapers, um, I decided to do a full-length biography of Black Bart. And, and the book is uh, it's by far the most in-depth book. It's 378 pages, something like that. And so that's sort of the background of why I decided to do it. So Black Bart was not his real name. And I'm going to rattle off some stuff. And then you let me know whether I'm full of crap or not. One, I've read that his name was Charles E. Bowles. He was born in 1829 in Norfolk, England. Is that correct? That's true. He died sometime after February 28th, 1888, around 58 to 59 years old. 
we don't, he died at some point after getting out of San Quentin prison in 1888, but nobody knows what happened to him. Okay. His parents, um, his parents were John and Maria Bowles. Uh, that's true. <clears throat> so, and then he ends up marrying a lady named Mary Elizabeth Johnson, and they have four children. And he originally was not anything to do with stagecoach robbing. He was a prospector. He was in the Civil War. Um, he was invo- He was involved in the California Gold Rush with his brother David and James. Can you expand on that before he became this stagecoach robber? Yeah, sure. So he, uh, as you mentioned, he was born in <clears throat> about in a little village called Shelfhanger, which is about. 20 miles south of Norwich, England. And this is in the Norfolk region of England, up on the northeast coast. And he uh, came to the U.S. when he was only a year old. The local church had sponsored uh, a group of impoverished farmers and paid for them to come to the U.S., And the reason the church did that is because uh, they would have been on the dole, basically. There's no welfare back then, but poor people would be supported by the church. So in order to uh, basically get them off the payroll, the church collected money and sent this group of quite a few families, and they came by a sailing ship, from England to New York. Then they took the Erie Canal up to upstate New York, and they settled in the region around Waterton, New York. And that's where Black Bart, his true name, Charles Bowles, grew to manhood. He was very intelligent, a gentleman from an early age. He loved to read. He only had an eighth grade education, uh, perhaps if there were more opportunities, he might have ended up uh, being a storekeeper or maybe a lawyer or something like that. But, uh, you know, those opportunities were not always there. And not everybody had, you know, the personality and drive of someone like Abraham Lincoln, who's born in abject poverty and becomes probably the greatest American ever. Uh, Black Bart's background was similar. I mean, he's born or grew grew up rather in what was essentially a log cabin, you know, in a very remote area of New York in 1830. And he became very, very popular. And uh, he was an expert of what was called uh, collar and elbow wrestling, or it was also called Irish scuffling where the combatants would be allowed to grab the shoulders or the collar of their opponent and try to throw them to the ground. And he was very athletic. And uh, later, when he became notorious, uh, newspaper reporters interviewed some of his boyhood friends who were just flabbergasted. They just could not believe that Charlie Bowles had ended up as one of the most famous outlaws of the Old West. Uh, So... What happened was uh, he 
hated farm work. He, he did not enjoy planting. He didn't enjoy digging ditches, you know, irrigating crops. And for somebody who has a stronger character, those farmers were the ones who became wealthy. Uh, those farmers are the ones who stuck in for the long haul. You know, they'd work and work, and gradually, over a period of 30 or 40 years, they'd acquire more and more property. They'd have employees, and they become rich. And, you know, we've seen that in our own history, and many of the people listening to this podcast know rich farmers. Uh, matter of fact, in some communities I know, people are mad because they think the farmers have too much power, too much money, you know, but uh, these guys work for it, right? Well, Charlie Bowles was not willing to settle in for the long haul. And so in the winter of 1848, he picks up the local Waterton newspaper and all over the front page is this story that nobody believed that gold was discovered in California like 10 months earlier. Uh, this would be in January of 1848. It took that long. It took 10 months for news of the gold discovery to reach the East Coast. And then it took weeks more for it to be republished in the various newspapers. And the editor of the newspaper uh, wrote, this is a hoax. This is an effort to get people to immigrate to the barren deserts and barren mountains of California. You know, and people back then, they had no idea. Nobody had ever been to California. They just heard it was a wild country full of dangerous Indians and bad uh, Mexicans, you know, and it had been taken over from Mexico following the Mexican War. And so people just, it was all roundly disbelieved. But then a few weeks later, toward the end of 1848, <clears throat> President James Polk, in his, what they used to, what they call today, the State of the Union Address, back then it had a different title. He says, the reports of gold coming from our military officers and government officials in California are so numerous they cannot possibly be doubted. <clears throat> and suddenly, this begins one of the greatest migrations in, in the history of mankind, and it sets off this electrifying uh, mass movement of people from all over the world to come to California. And so, you know, the first people that find out about it are uh, Mexicans in northern Mexico, in Chihuahua and Sonora, many of whom are experienced miners. They hear about it long before all the, the uh, uh, Yankees find out about it in New York. So they get on their horses and mules, and they end up in California by the summer of 1848. So they got a six-month jump on, on the gringos who showed up later. Well, Charlie Bowles, <clears throat> he just is overwhelmed with gold fever. This is how he's going to live his life. This is the way I'm going to make a fortune. So with one of his cousins, they mount a couple of old mules, and they got no money, so they can't afford to, you know, to go to New York City and pay hundreds of dollars for a sailing ship that would take them around Cape Horn at the bottom of South America, which is like a in a four or five month sailing trip. So they decide we're going to head across the, uh, the country and, uh, you know, 
go across uh, the, the route that the wagon trains would take across the Overland Trail. So that's how he first gets introduced to the Wild West. Wow. So he's doing all this stuff, but he ended up not, am I wrong, not doing as well as he's hoped, and then he went back east again? That's true. So, so many of the 49ers uh, just didn't strike it rich. Most of them didn't. They'd come, they'd get their rocker pans and their rockers, rather, and their uh, gold pans and their sluice boxes, and they'd just dig and dig, and they'd throw the dirt into the sluice boxes and hope that some flakes of gold would wash out. And some did make it uh, big, especially the ones who got there in the early part of the gold rush. But with Charlie Bowles and so many others, they realized this is way worse than working on a farm. We're digging and lugging rocks around. We're making dams on these little creeks. We're trying to beat our way through the chaparral brush. You know, there's no roads, no trails, no police, no fire departments, no government, no nothing. Uh, This is basically a caveman lifestyle. And it was just grueling. And But many of them uh, had come by ship from San Francisco. They come across the San Joaquin Valley or the Sacramento Valley. And these guys are farmers and they're looking and they go, this is the best farmland I've ever seen in my life. You know, it's sunny most of the year. It's well watered. There's plenty of rain. Uh, you know, we can make a living as farmers. So what starts to happen by the early 1850s, the guys that are doctors that join the gold rush, they realize I can make way more money treating uh, these miners as patients, the ones that are lawyers and countless doctors and lawyers and engineers and people of every school, teachers, every occupation you could imagine join the gold rush and so many of these people then reverted to their prior occupations and became very successful because this is a huge boom economy uh, because the miners who are finding gold are spending it but there's way too many miners for the amount of gold that's there so Charlie Bowles in short uh, he realizes uh, this ain't going to work so he and his cousin they get on their horses or mules and they end up riding all the way back. They stop with uh, his, one of his older brother who settled in Iowa. And then they return to New York, but he's got this gold fever so bad that he, he can't, you know, give it up. So then he and his brother, another brother and his, another cousin decide we're going to California and this time. We're really going to do it Right. So they then have enough money to pay for a steamer ticket, which takes them to the Isthmus of Panama, or actually at that time it was Nicaragua. And they basically go through the jungle where there's a very well-established, this is by 1852, 1853, they've already got a transportation corridor through the jungle of Nicaragua where you take the steamer, to the Caribbean side, you then take another boat 
down a river and across a lake, and then you board these stagecoaches and wagons that takes you the rest of the way to the Pacific coast. What they didn't know is that that jungle is filled with malaria uh, mosquitoes, and uh, they get bit by mosquitoes, and by the time they board a steamer uh, on the uh, Pacific side and end up in San Francisco, uh, two of the three are deathly ill, and within a short time, Charlie's cousin and brother both die from malaria. And But Bowles himself is very, very hardy. He's been exposed to malaria before. Uh, when he was crossing the plains, it was called the Illinois Shakes because there was tremendous amounts of malaria along the Mississippi River Basin. And he apparently developed an immunity to it or some kind of immunity uh, because he survived. And so he goes on to the mining country and he spends another year or so there with the same result. He can't make it rich. It's too much work and not enough reward. So finally he gives up again, returns to uh, Iowa to his brother's farm. And there he meets a young woman named Mary Elizabeth Johnson. And uh, they end up uh, getting married. And uh, but it seems like it was probably a shotgun wedding uh, because only like three or four months after they married, uh, they either had an immaculate conception uh, or she was already three or four months along when they when they wed because they had a baby, uh, not that with, within the uh, incorrect biological time period after they tied the knot. So it seems like it was a shotgun wedding. Uh, and uh, Charlie ended up having three wonderful daughters with Mary and a son. Uh, he then, uh, uh, the short version is, he has farmland in northern Iowa, near Cresco, Iowa. Uh, then he ends up moving uh, to Illinois and settles uh, in central Illinois, uh, where he uh, has a farm, actually I have a picture of the tumble-down farmhouse that he lived in that's in the book. And he's sort of back where he started. Now he's got three daughters. Uh, he's got this farm in Illinois. And uh, he hates farming, and he's got all this responsibility. And by this time, you know, it's 1861. The Civil War is broken out. Uh, he is interested in enlisting, but he doesn't do it. Everybody thinks the war is going to be over in three months. Uh, that's, you know, so much for a war, a war, right? I mean, that was, uh, the worst calculation ever. And so in 1862, uh, Lincoln issues a request to President Lincoln for hundreds of thousands of volunteers, because by this time they realize this war is going to be really, really bad and really, really long. And as we know today, looking in retrospect, it was the first mechanized modern war ever with, you know, modern weapons, troops being brought to the battlegrounds by trains and steamers, a rapid movement of military uh, units. And so Charlie joins the 116th Illinois in Decatur, Illinois, which is where his little farm is just north of Decatur. And uh, he then, in brief, 
serves with extraordinary courage and honor. He's wounded two times in action, according to the military records. Uh, he said three times. Uh, many of his closest friends were killed in combat. Uh, he saw uh, action at Vicksburg, at Missionary Ridge, at Resaca, uh, Atlanta, and then he fights from the you know what they call the Western Theater, which would be Missouri, Arkansas, Tennessee. Uh, from there to Atlanta, and then was with Sherman on the march to the sea. And this was something that made a huge impression on him because they, uh, of what the military did, and I can go into that briefly because it does explain, uh, it helps explain his later career as a stage robber. That's up to you. Yeah, so basically uh, the Sherman's orders were to forage through the South and to go from Atlanta to Savannah, Georgia, and to lay waste to everything in their path, to burn the cotton mills, to destroy the buildings and roads, to tear up the railroad tracks and burn the bridges. And they moved so quickly, they could not have their supply lines and supply wagons keep up with them. So they were authorized to forage, which really means to pillage. And they went through these communities and they stole everything, cattle, sheep, chickens, hogs, whatever they needed. And I've got accounts from Charlie's buddies in his unit, which took a lot of research to find because bulls did not leave uh, any accounts to speak of, a few little interviews here and there in later years. Uh, he told about some of what he did, but most of what we know about him came from his captain and the other uh, uh, guys from the 116th Illinois. And they described this, how they left these families with basically nothing but their ho uh, clothes on their backs, uh, because they had stolen everything that they owned and uh, they went and that's how they lay waste. They cut a path through the South, cut off the uh, uh, troops in the North from their support in the South, basically cut the South in half and caused tremendous morale issues. And this was the thing that really brought the South to its knees. And it was really sort of a modern type of warfare, you know, take no prisoners, that kind of thing. And so for Bowles, he was able to justify it. Uh, some of his, his buddies in his unit said this is horrible. When they wrote letters home or they gave reminiscences in later years, they said this was just uh, horrible what we did to these people. Uh, but uh, Sherman was a fairly ruthless military leader and when you look at it you know the north did not start the war and it was like we've had enough we are going to put this war to bed and we're going to do whatever we can and that was sherman's uh, approach with bowls it was it's okay to steal you know we can justify anything and so he then in the short version is he ends up back in Decatur, Illinois, with his wife. By this time, they have a young boy that was conceived while he was um, on leave. He was given one leave in that whole time, that whole, you know, three years or more that he was in the service, uh, which is probably more leave than a lot of soldiers ever got at that point. 
And so in the Army, another thing that affected him was he just became very, very hardened. He became uh, uh, physically, even though he was physically very tough, because he'd already crossed the country several times, which very few people in that era had done. Most people would cross it once, get to California, spend the rest of their lives there. Uh, Bowles had been back and forth twice. Uh, so four separate trips uh, across the continent, uh, overland and by ship. So he was very well-traveled and tough. In the Army, uh, they would walk 50 miles a day with full pack, with rifle, bayonet, cartridge box. They would survive for days on nothing but bacon and hard tack. Uh, sometimes they just get a little bacon and biscuit and a coffee. That's all they'd have for an entire day. And they would survive on this. And many, of course, died. I, I believe the, I'm not a Civil War expert, but I think probably as many or more soldiers died from malnutrition and illness as, as did from artillery fire and from bullet wounds. But in any event, Charlie comes back from the war. He's used to stealing. He's used to a very tough life. He's used to sleeping outdoors in all weather. Uh, he's just tough, and he's a survivor. And so he's, you know, goes back to farming, which he absolutely hates. And in 1867, uh, the big thing is the uh, gold discoveries in Montana that had first started in the early 60s. Uh, then there was sort of a hiatus because of the war and all the violence that happened in Montana, the vigilantes, Henry Plummer, the sheriff of Montana, the, the crooked stuff that was going on there, which sort of, you know, uh, deterred people from going to Montana because it was seen as like you're signing your death warrant if you go to Montana in 1863. Uh, you're either going to get killed by an outlaw or lynched by a vigilante. That was sort of a general belief, right? But by 1867, many of these veterans are looking toward a new life. But these are generally young guys who don't have a family. Well, Charlie's got a farm, a family. He's got four kids. Um, he decides, I'm joining the gold rush to Montana. And he says, and his wife later said, oh, well, we agreed that he would go to Montana. But two of his buddies who were in the, the Illinois Volunteer Indicator were later interviewed, and they said no. Uh, he and Mary had a big fight, and they separated, and he just abandoned his family. Uh, but he did go to Montana, and he would always write letters back, I'm coming back to you, I'm coming to you, I'll be back. Well, that wasn't true. They never saw him again. So then he, the short version is he then ends up eventually in Utah, finally Nevada, and then California. And uh, in 1875, he suddenly appears on the streets of San Francisco, and he's wearing a derby hat, a gold cane. He's dressed to the nines. He's wearing a salt and pepper a wool suit and a long chinchilla overcoat, very expensive, polished shoes. He's hanging out at the theater. He's hanging out the varieties, which were the popular shows of the era. He's well known at the various racetracks and the various uh, saloons, of which he really isn't a big drinker, but he just likes to be seen. And uh, becomes very well known in San Francisco. He's got his buddies, include Ed Byram, a very well known police detective. Uh, 
Chris Cox, one of the best-known police detectives in San Francisco, um, the police chief of uh, uh, the sheriff of San Francisco, Dave Scannell, but probably one of the best-known men in town, is a friend of his. And uh, but but people don't know, and he tells everybody, "I'm a mining investor, and uh, I have my mines up in the mountains." And he was a mining investor. The thing was, he was mining the Wells Fargo Express boxes. He wasn't mining any mines other than Wells Fargo. And so what happened was, while he's in San Francisco, uh, there were regular stage robberies throughout the mining region. These would be, you know, probably a monthly occurrence. And most of these robbers are these kind of you know, desperados, these uneducated, hard-riding, hard-drinking characters who hang out in brothels and they get drunk all the time. And so most of them get caught pretty quickly because all police officers and sheriffs in that era know if you have a a stage robbery outside your town, uh, the first thing you do is go to every prostitute in town and ask them, did any guy come in here with a bunch of gold and pay you? And the girls, of course, uh, they want to stay in business. So they go, oh, yeah, it was Joe Dokes. And he had. And next thing you know, Joe Dokes is in jail because he was dumb enough to go to a, a bordello, you know, eight miles from where he robbed a stagecoach. And the same thing with the gambling halls. Uh, a lot of gamblers, like the prostitutes, were allowed to operate, even though gambling and prostitution were illegal and different. They were legal in some communities, illegal in others. But they were given a pass as long as they would inform on all the crooks who came in and out of their uh, places of business. Charlie never did that. Charlie Bowles, he didn't drink. He only gambled at racetracks. He boasted that he never uh, gambled in California other than racetracks. Now, in the war, his uh, fellow soldiers, one of the things they remembered most most about him was he was a very good uh, card player, very good at poker. But perhaps he just knew that. He knew if I stay out of brothels, if I stay out of gambling halls, they're going to have a heck of a time trying to catch me. And that turned out to be exactly true. So the end result was the... What Charlie was doing was he pretended to be Charles E. Bolton. He just changed his last name a little bit, B-O-L-T-O-N. And every three or four months, as soon as he'd get a little bit low on cash, he'd slip out of San Francisco. He'd just walk down Market Street to the ferry building, which is still there. He'd jump a ferry to Oakland. Then he'd hop either a steamer up the uh, San Joaquin and Sacramento Rivers, or he'd take a railroad train up to the railhead up around Redding, and he'd get off and he'd walk easily 50 miles, 100, 150 miles to a remote stage road. He'd then have his double-barrel shotgun, a broken-down shotguns in that era. You break them into, you know, you uh, pop the uh, four-stock loose, break them in half, uh, so that the barrel and the stock and the uh, the butt stock are uh, uh, set side by side. And he had a sawed-off shotgun, so it's less than three feet long, the whole thing, two and a half feet at the most. 
and he'd have it wrapped up in his blanket roll so nobody would know he was armed. He'd just be some guy walking down the road, and then he'd generally stay off the major wagon roads. He'd walk cross-country or take, uh, you know, hunting trails or deer trails and uh, so people wouldn't see him. And then he'd uh, jump in front of a stagecoach on an uphill. If you watch Western movies, they're robbers, uh, you know, chase the stage. And John Wayne is on top of the stagecoach shooting at the bandits. And then uh, they chase the stagecoach until the horses are exhausted. I can't, uh, you know, I've researched, uh, you know, probably 500 stage robberies in the old West over the years. And I've never once seen a holdup that happened like that. What the robbers would do is they'd hide their horses if they had them. Charlie never rode a horse uh, on a stage robbery. And then uh, he would stop the coach on an uphill when it's at a walk, when the horses are straining. Often on a steep uphill, the driver would make all the passengers get out of the coach and walk to, you know, lighten the load. And Charlie would just appear in front of the, the team. Uh, it's moving very slowly. Uh, he'd say very politely, please throw down the box, hands up please throw down the box. And what he meant was the Wells Fargo Express box. In one of his first robberies, a terrified woman threw her purse onto the road and he gave her a bow and he reached down and picked up the purse and the dust and handed it back to her. And he said, we don't rob uh, passengers. We don't rob women. And this is why he became known as the gentleman bandit because according to myth, he never swore, which is not quite, there was a couple robberies where he did a lot of swearing. He was pretty uh, frustrated at the time. But for a general, uh, as a general rule, he was extremely polite and uh, it is a fact that he never once robbed a passenger. And then what would happen is he would just vanish and the local officers would try to track him. And sometimes they'd be able to track him for a day, but then he'd disappear. He'd get on a steamer, he'd get on a railroad train, and the next thing you know, he's back in his rooming house on 3rd Street in downtown San Francisco living the high life again. And this went on for eight years. So, first off, I could listen to you talk for hours. Like, there should be a John Bosnecker show. And just John comes on for an hour and just tells history. Second thing for you. Uh, well, excuse, I have to correct one thing. Tell my wife that, and she would say, how is there a way to make him shut up? Well, your wife is not going to be invited to listen. Um, <laughs> the other thing, too, for the listener is John and I, along with all my podcasts, we don't do a pre-interview and so we don't, I don't send any of my podcast or people that I do the interviews, I guess they're interviewees, they do not get a list of questions. They get no questions. And so if you've ever listened to any of the podcasts, there's 58 hours worth, uh, this will be 59, there's not one question sent to the interviewee so that they can read up on it or research. John just gave you over 35 minutes, almost over 35 minutes of stuff that he just knows off the top of his head, it's it's mind-boggling that you can do that. So, and you're you're almost in competition with Michael Bell as giving the longest answer. <laughs> well, your, I will say this: if you asked me a question about a book I wrote in 1988, I would not be quite that voluble. 
well, my uh, dementia would probably kick in and limit the amount of information I well, can provide. Yeah, that book would be The Gray Fox, and it's one of my favorite movies. It just came out digitally, and uh, and John wrote. John had a hand in writing that book, The Gray Fox. Someday I'll get him on to talk about The Gray Fox because it's in the Bill Miner story. Um, if you're wondering, we're talking to John Bosnecker. He's got a new book coming out called The Gentleman Bandit, The True Story of Black Bart, The Old West's Most Infamous Stagecoach Robber. You can find that at booksellers near you. He is a New York Times bestseller, so that, get him, that gets him into all the major... Uh, uh, booksellers around the country, worldwide, and Amazon as well. And the reasons that I really want to push Amazon is if you're listening in the UK or Australia, you know, go to Amazon and purchase it because the shipping costs are next to nothing. So if you're wanting, getting, wanting to get an American-made pub, and, uh, and published history book, go to Amazon and purchase John's book. And that, like I said, the shipping is next to nothing. And you can get that history right to your door, especially if you're in the UK or Australia or someplace out of, you know, the boundaries of America, like Canada, places like that. So go to Amazon because this is going to be an insane read. We have about 20 minutes left. I wanted to ask a little bit real quick. It's kind of a funny story. And if it's true on his first train robbery where he, he, or not trained, but stagecoach robbery in Calaveras County. Uh, it's said that it was between Copperopolis and Milton and that he, he asked the stage driver, John Shine, to throw down the box. And he yells back as John Shine is handing over the box, Bowl shouts out loud, if he dares to shoot, give him a solid volley, boys. John looks out into the into the darkness and sees barrels of weapons pointing at him. He hands over the strong box. When the stagecoach where the robbery is over with, John goes out and examines the area only to find the rat the rifles are carefully rigged sticks and Black Bart netted only $160. Is that true? Yes, the story's oh, true. That's crazy. And uh you know, I always wondered, where did he get this idea for the whittling the sticks to put them into the brush to make it look like he had a whole gang? And that's the same holdup that you described, where the lady threw her purse out right. into the road. And he said, we don't rob from women. We don't rob passengers. He was pretending that he had a whole gang with him. And so where that came from was, in again his Civil War experience, both sides of the Civil War used what were called Quaker guns. And Quakers had a religious uh, exemption to service in the military, uh, which is well known. And so sort of as a facetious name for these fake guns that the different sides would use, they'd take logs, you know, trim the logs down, put them on a gun carriage, and place them on top of their earthworks. And from a distance, when the enemy would look, it would appear that they were heavily defended by cannon. And they were called Quaker guns because they, they were, you know, they were not real guns, right? They, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't shoot. And so that's where he got the idea for the sticks. And there was one other robbery on the Mendocino coast. He didn't use uh, Quaker guns or these sticks. Uh, but the passengers were so terrified, they thought that he had a whole gang with him. 
And uh, it was also on the North Coast, and this is the thing that he's probably most famous for, he was known as the Poet Highwayman. And so after one of his robberies up on the Mendocino Coast, the Sonoma Coast, there was a what's now a Highway 1. Uh, there were several stage robberies he did up in that area. And after one robbery, the uh, officers came to the site, a posse, to try to track him. And in the express box is a piece of paper with a uh, some... What, what we might call today a poem, although the newspapermen back in that era called it doggerel. They didn't want to uh, compliment him for because they thought it was bad poetry. But he wrote on the, this piece of paper something that really said a lot about him and what motivated him, and also his sense of humor. And he wrote, I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns, too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of bitches. <laughs> and you can see with that, you know, he's, on the one hand, he's very humorous, which is what everybody said about him. But he's also very bitter. He thinks he earned it. He thinks it's owed to him. It's okay for him to steal. And you guys have been mean to me because I've never made it rich. So now I'm going to steal from you. And it just basically says everything you need to know about him. And the other thing, even though, you know, he robbed 29 stagecoaches, I can explain briefly, you know, when we get to that point, how he was finally captured. And then he held up three more uh, after he got out of prison. And those stage robberies were all, you know, all very, very similar. He confessed to of the, what, what is that, 29, my, my math is horrible, but 32 robberies, he confessed to 29 of them. Uh, so that's sort of uh, 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 a major um, a myth about Black Bart is that he left 29 poems. He left uh, a poem after every stage robbery, and the answer is no. He re uh, left poetry after two of the stage robberies, not 29. Well, I don't want you to... I don't want you to give the stuff in the middle away because honestly, there's so much in this book that we haven't spoken about. And we have about, about 10 minutes left that I don't want to share everything. I, I do want to ask you about the, his final days. It's noted, it says, that Bowles never returned to his wife after his release from prison. Did he, in fact, go to prison? Yes, he's uh, long story short. He's eventually tracked through what I call the telltale handkerchief, which is actually the term a Wells Fargo detective used. Right. Because after his last robbery, he was fired on. Uh, he fled, leaving behind his derby hat, uh, a few of his personal items, and a handkerchief, which had a laundry mark on it. And that laundry mark is given to Harry Morse, who's the most famous lawman on the West Coast back then. And uh, Morse, the short version is, he manages to track down Black Bart and capture him. And this makes national news. It's in newspapers all over the country uh, that Black Bart has finally been captured. And I didn't mention it before, but he took the name Black Bart from his favorite short story, which was written by a California author, and the villain in the story is Black Bart. And so that's where he gets his nickname from. And he signed his poetry, Black Bart. And uh, he, he would then taunt the Wells Fargo detectives 
the head Wells Fargo detective, James B. Hume, uh, tried to catch Bart for eight years till they were finally successful. And after a few of the photograph, uh, a few of the uh, holdups, uh, Bowles would tell the driver, give my best to Detective Hume, just wow. to taunt them. You know, this is the kind mm-hmm. of guy he was. So eventually uh, he's sent to San Quentin, has many, many uh, adventures and, you know, incidents that happened both before and after he got out of prison. And then he just vanished uh, after he was released from prison. He wrote multiple letters I mentioned earlier that I have, I think about eight of them. And in the letters, he I, he writes to his wife and his daughters, I love you, I miss you, I'm coming home. It's just a big lie. He never did. Never did. So this is John Bolton. And, and oh, and I say in the book, oh, sorry. now in my opinion, that's <clears throat> the worst crime he ever committed. So if you're wondering, we're talking to John Bosnucker, his book, Gentleman Bandit, the true story of Black, Black Bart, uh, the Old West's most infamous stagecoach robber is available on Amazon and booksellers near you. I urge you to go get it. It's a beautiful cover. Uh, if you're watching or listening to this podcast, you can see a portion of it in the in the cover photo. It is a beautiful cover. I also want to, um, he, he agreed to, to this one. Um, we'll schedule this, this interview later on in the year. Um, I just finished his book, The Epic Life of Frank Hamer, The Man Who Killed Bonnie and Clyde, Texas Ranger. I urge you to go get that one. It's a long read. It is so damn good. And it, if you haven't read the Frank Hamer book about the, this wonderful Texas Ranger and the information that John packs into it it was a slow read because sometimes i had to read this the chapter or the page twice because it was so much especially when it got into the bonnie and clyde part it was just it was intense i couldn't put the book down so i urge you to go at your bookseller or go on amazon and get the epic life of frank hamer the man who killed bonnie and clyde texas ranger um, phenomenal book, and he has, he has agreed to come back and do a podcast about that book. What are you working on next? Because you have always got something in the works. What's going on next? What's coming out maybe later in 2023 or early 2024? My current project is a biography of Joaquin Murrieta, the uh, so-called Robin Hood of El Dorado, uh, he was the most famous Latino outlaw of the Old West and was the most famous outlaw of the California Gold Rush. Because I've seen you in some Facebook groups that I didn't expect you to to see you in. And one of them was a California history group. And a guy posted some information about this gentleman that you speak of. And you turned around and made corrections. Um so this subject, this man, must be dear to you for you to be involving yourself in discussion groups about a person that you haven't finished a book yet, I would assume. Is that correct? Well, I've uh, people have been asking me to do a book about Joaquin Murrieta for uh, about 20 years, I guess. And I've always um, sort of hesitated 
because approximately 10% of everything published about Joaquin Murrieta is factual, and about 90% is just complete hogwash, uh, crazy oral history, myth, legend, fabrications, uh, many of the most popular books about him, including Walter Noble Burns, who wrote the, uh, you know, the book about Billy the Kid. He wrote Tombstone about Wyatt Earp. Uh, and then his other huge bestseller, these books were all written back in the late 20s and early 30s, was called The Robin Hood of El Dorado. There was a big blockbuster movie in the early mid-30s by the same title, mm. but his book, which everybody thought was fact, is in fact a, there's a lot of fact in there, but it's basically a historical novel. Mm. And so in more recent years, a number of people have written books about Joaquin Marietta of very um, uneven quality. Some are just all myth. Uh, some have a lot of facts, but it's kind of the same situation with Black Bart is that many of the books were done independently. And so I felt uh, that I had enough information to write a factual biography and to try to use these different sources and kind of um, uh, put them all into one book but write it from primary sources only because, uh, you know, a year, just like with Billy the Kid, soon after uh, he was killed, Pat Garrett wrote a book with Ash Upson uh, that then kind of colored everything written about Billy the Kid for 100 years after that. And the same thing happened with Joaquin Marietta. Uh, he was killed by the California Rangers in 1853. There was no photographers and within two or 300 miles, uh, very few photographers at all in California in 1853. So they cut off his head, put it in a jar of alcohol and took it all over the mining country and collected affidavits to identify him so that they could collect the state reward of $5,000 for him, dead or alive. And uh, the what happened was... A Cherokee author named John Rollin Ridge, his Cherokee name was Yellowbird, uh, was fascinated by the story. <clears throat> so a year after Joaquin was killed, he released a novel about Murrieta. Some of it's true, but most a lot of it's made up. And at this you know, late date, <clears throat> it's hard to tell who he actually interviewed and what parts came out of his brain, his imagination. But the problem is then everything uh, written about uh, Joaquin Murrieta after 1854 was highly colored, just like what happened with the Billy the Kid book. Right. So and Joaquin, if anything, because his career was well before Billy the Kid's killed in 1881, if I remember correctly, or eight, yeah, 81, <clears throat> and Joaquin is killed almost 30 years earlier. So the newspaper accounts, court records, diaries on Joaquin Marietta are much sparser and harder to mm. find than they are about Billy the Kid. Well, you heard it there. Um, he's got, when does it release? Yeah, I'm just starting. It's only maybe a tenth written, so that's a good question. Well, quit screwing uh, around. I'll, I'll have it finished in a year or so. Well, quit screwing around because doing this once a year <laughs> thing is is bugging your the lawyer and there was were, there's a lot of loyal folks out there that uh, love your books and uh, keep doing what you're doing we appreciate you 
Um, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I'm one of them. I've got some autographed copies um, of the book. I've got this Frank Hamer book was autographed. He put a little personal note, I, and, I, and I love that. Um, he's got his um, um, anthology book that's out there, the Devil's Herd book about uh, Wyatt Earp. I mean, there's just... Man, there's just a ton of stuff, and you can find it all on Amazon, Amazon and booksellers. And I urge you to really get out there and get John's books and start reading them because they are just jam packed with information. Of course, I want to thank all my friends at the uh, Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest running newspaper. You can subscribe uh, by going to tombstoneepitaph.com, <clears throat> and also my second family at the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. You can also find my podcast on Spotify and iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Please give a rating and review. And if you're an iTunes or a Spotify listener, please hit that subscribe button and give a rating and a review because it does help with distribution. If you have an, a, a, like an author or a researcher that that you want to hear a podcast. I do get requests like the Linda Womack was a huge request and I had lots of people email me. If you want to email, you can use my blue collar email at H-V-A-C-R-E-F-E-R-Guy, G-U-Y at gmail.com. That's H-V-A-C reefer guy. I do air conditioning and refrigeration for a living. And so H-V-A-C reefer guy at gmail.com. If there's a historian, a researcher, writer that you want to hear, um, a podcast or an interview with, please drop a note. You can also find me uh, at Cochise County Travels on Facebook. That's Cochise County's underscore travels on Facebook, as well as the same Cochise County underscore travels on Instagram. And if you want more about Wild West History Association, please go to their Facebook page. They also have a YouTube page, which has got some insane interviews with Victoria Wilcox and Dr. Gary Roberts. That's phenomenal interviews um, between the two of them. It's like a seven or eight part series. It's fantastic. Uh, you can also friend, uh, excuse me, find uh, Wild West History Association uh, over on Instagram with my good friend Dave Guyton. He's running that. And so there's tons of stuff out there. And new to Instagram is is our mutual friend, Samuel K. Dolan. Sam Dolan is over on Instagram, and daily he's posting photos about the line riders and the Texas Rangers and all sorts of historic uh, information, photos with stories. It's phenomenal. And go see Sam Dolan, Samuel K. Dolan, over on Instagram. As always, I appreciate you guys a bunch. Safe travels, and we'll see you soon. <music>